at the conclusion of Ephesians 3, verse 21, we read, Unto him be glory in the church. How does the church bring glory to God? I think that's a good question for us to think about this morning. How can the church bring glory to God? How can a group of people who are all sinners bring glory to God? And this morning, the title of the sermon is Your New Normal. Your New Normal. So beginning in chapter 4, we're going to see how we, the church, can and will bring glory to the Lord. Now that we've found our spot, let's go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. I want to just rehearse a couple things with you. In chapter 1, we learned that we are called by God's grace into the body. There's nothing we can do to be good enough to get into the body, to get into the church. Yet, God says, I'm going to, by my grace, put you into the body. So we come to chapter 4, and Paul begins with this word. He says, I therefore. The word therefore refers us back to what has just been talked about. We've been studying chapters 1 through 3. And as we've been talking about, the first three chapters are all on doctrine. And doctrine, you kind of get that glazed over look in your eyes and you think facts are not fun. No one wants to just study facts. But the reality is the first three chapters are what allow us to reach chapter four and be able to take that therefore and be able to bring glory to God. It helps us to understand what God has done for us. I, therefore. Do you remember how Romans chapter 12 begins? He says, I beseech you, therefore. Paul does this often. The first 11 chapters in Romans all deal with doctrine, about teaching. And then 12 through the end of the book tells us, because of what God has done, this is what you can do. And that's a really important thing for us this morning because so often you go into church and you feel this pressure, I've got to somehow perform, and I don't know how I'm going to perform. I mean, if you saw me when you weren't, when no one else was around, you would see me for my weaknesses and you'd see all my problems, and you would say, "How how can I bring glory to God when I have a hard time just getting along with the people that live in my house? If I have a really hard time getting along with my coworkers, how is this possible? It's just not in me. And that's the reason why the therefore is really important. Without chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6 doesn't work so good. All the things he's going to describe for us. What we know should always impact what we do. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, there, there's a whole series of events that happened, and this one phrase always stands out to me. It's not a quote from the scriptures, but it's the summary of what takes place. It's not what you know. It's what you do with what you know that counts. 
It's possible to come to church and collect lots of information over the years, and you can be doctrinally really smart. But it's how we take the doctrine and then say, okay, I believe this. What we believe is going to impact the way we behave. Just because you know something doesn't mean that you're doing it. Just because you know something doesn't even mean that you've really even bought into it. And I mentioned to you last week, I believe, from Psalm 119, when you talk about what if you've got some habits in your life? What if you've got some problems in your life and you say, I really don't want to be this way. I want to change. And in Psalm 119, after the first eight verses where he talks about the incredible life that's available for someone who does what Scripture says, he then asks the question that all of us in the back of our minds are maybe even afraid to ask, and that is, so how can a person change? And the Scriptures tell us, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. In other words, when you decide who you're going to listen to, the first step in changing in your lifestyle is determining, who am I going to listen to today? Am I going to listen to me? Am I going to listen to you? Am I going to listen to somebody on the radio? Who am I going to listen to? And who I listen to is going to determine what I choose to do. And Psalm 119, beginning at verse 9, says, how does a person change? How does any person change? First of all, by determining who you're going to listen to. By taking heed according to the word. The word there, heed, means to bend over and listen to. There's always lots of background noise. And we have to determine, who am I going to lock in on? Maybe you've had this happen to you. You're talking to somebody, and you hear another conversation going on, and all of a sudden you have switched channels on that person. Probably you've never done that. I've done that before, and I all of a sudden have to think, what are they talking about? Because I'm not hearing them anymore. Well, that's what happens to us. It's possible even this morning. Maybe there's not an audible voice going on, but your mind is somewhere else. You're hearing me, but you're not hearing me. How a person changes is when they pay attention to what they're hearing. And then in verse 10 of Psalm 119, it says, With my whole heart have I sought thee. That's the buy-in. You see, the most amazing thing is God tells us what we need to know, but he gives us a choice. We get to choose. Today, there's no one that's forcing you to do what God says. You get the choice. So he says, listen to God's word. If you want to know how to change, he says in verse 9, pay attention to what God says. Second of all, commit to do what God says. And the third thing he says, which is a familiar verse, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And that is when we memorize, we store what God has said so that we know what we ought to do. Well, based on chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, that is the doctrine. That's the information you got to know to be able to do 4 through 6. You want to have a really good family life. If you want to know how can you be the right kind of person in your family, that doesn't guarantee that everyone else in your family is going to do right. Okay? I don't tell you today, you do this and I guarantee your family is going to be perfect. Can't do that. Everybody gets a choice. Sometimes that doesn't make us too happy. So he says, I beseech you, therefore, therefore, based on all these things that have already been written, I, therefore, because of what I've just told you, because I've said that you have the power that works in you, 
you can bring glory to God. So what does bringing glory to God look like? How can we as a church bring glory to God? But more importantly, how can I bring glory to God? What can my new normal look like in my life? I know what my old normal looked like. What does my new normal look like? The more we know our Bibles, the easier it's going to be to obey the Christian responsibilities that we have. That's why our Bible studies are so important, personal as well as our corporate Bible studies. You see, it matters what you believe. Sometimes we think we've heard a pastor say something, we've heard a radio person say something, and we say, okay, well, I guess that's what I ought to do, but we haven't gone back and said, but is that what God's Word says? I'm hoping every week, whatever I say, you're always indexing it back and saying, okay, he said this is what the Bible said, he showed us this is where it was in the Bible, and this is what the context of those verses mean, therefore, yes, that is true. You believe it not because I said it, you believe it because that's what the Bible said. Now that we have been made to sit together with Christ, we are called to walk, to live differently. Notice he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He reminds us of this same thing he had said in chapter 3, verse 1. He's reminding them, when you do what the scripture says, sometimes it's going to cost you. It doesn't always, life doesn't just always go great because you do what scripture says. Because we live in a battlefield. So he says, remember, I'm a prisoner, but I'm a prisoner because of what I believe about Jesus Christ. I haven't broken the law. I've made people uncomfortable with the truth. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. I'm taking a little time here at the beginning, and then you'll see as we get into it, Paul is urging them. The word beseech means I'm coming alongside you. I'm encouraging you to do something. I'm going to encourage you to do something now that you know these facts. The word beseech urges us to live for his glory. Now, in the Old Testament, God said, if you obey me, I will bless you. Now, in the New Testament, he says, I've already blessed you. I've already given you all these things. Therefore, now you're free and able to do these things. You see the difference? Old Testament, do, do, do. New Testament, it's already done. I so enjoyed an illustration this week. I was actually reading a commentary that was written by a Chinese man. Um, he lived in the 30s. And he was just saying, for us, you know, usually we think of the work week, you work, 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 and then you rest. But New Testament believers begin with the day of rest. We begin with what Christ has done, and because of what Christ has done, now we're free to work. I'll just let you think about that this morning, but it was a huge blessing to me. The word beseech drives us to the fact God has already blessed us. We have a new normal in our lives. He has given us such a marvelous calling in Christ. We now have that responsibility to live to what God has given to us. Use what God has given to you. If you'd look back at chapter 2 for just a moment, 
verse 5, it says, Even when we were dead in sins, he, Jesus Christ, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Sitting has the idea of something that's done. Maybe you have someone coming over to your home and you're trying to get everything ready in the home. If you're trying to get everything ready in your home, what would you expect? You are up doing. But when you hit that point when everything's done, what do you do? Well, you can just kind of sit around and you can enjoy. Ah, they're not going to be here for another 15 minutes. Your wife walks in the room and she says, what are you doing sitting down? It's all done. And she passes out, right? <laughs> it's all done. It's no big deal. It's all completed. It's all ready. What does God say? When you were dead, he made you alive and he made you to sit. What does that tell you about your salvation? D-O-N-E. It's done. That ought to put a smile on your face this morning. It takes the pressure off when you look at how can I be saved? What is this like? You see, grace is God's enabling. Now let's look at these first two verses together. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God's grace is enabling. God can enable us to have unity. Unity is not uniformity. The goal here that God's talking about when he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that does not mean that next Sunday morning everyone needs to show up in a whatever this is, sport coat and dark pants. That's not unity. That's uniformity. You ever worn a uniform for something? That doesn't mean that everyone's on the same page, does it? Unity is not what we look like on the outside. It's not what we wear. Unity comes from something that is within each of us, and it's a grace that God gives. And he gives us a map for how to have unity without uniformity. He gives us a map of how we can bring glory to God every day. And we're going to look at six characteristics this morning. Look at just these first three verses. We're going to look at six characteristics that are necessary to be able to keep the unity of the body. But more than that, six characteristics that allow us just to bring glory to God today. And that's my goal today, as each one of us go out of here, that you would enjoy the fact I can bring glory to God today. Whatever your circumstances are, I can bring glory to God today. Let's look at the first one. He says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. 
All of us have been called to do something, and that vocation we saw from the end of chapter 3 was to bring glory to God. How do we do that? He says, first of all, with all lowliness. With all lowliness. The definition of lowliness is humiliation of the mind. What it really has the idea of is to bring low. It is the idea of putting Christ and being able to put others first and yourself last. John Wesley wrote that the Romans, neither the Romans nor the Greeks, had a word for humility. I thought that was interesting. Because the idea of being humble, the idea of humility was abhorrent to them. How could you enjoy life if you are at the bottom of the list? In fact, some scholars believe it was possibly Christianity and specifically Paul who coined the Greek term that's used here for lowliness. You see, there's a new normal. Humility is foundational to Christianity. If you keep your finger here, but let's turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 7 and 8. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Do you see, the one who freed us is the one who willingly humbled himself. He put others before himself. He came to do the Father's will. He came to do what was best for us, not what would be easy for him. You see, having the right mind is important to the rest of the characteristics we're going to study this morning. Anybody remember what the first sin was? The first sin was pride. Pride led Lucifer to exalt himself. Pride led Adam and Eve to say, I want to be able to make the decisions on right and wrong. I want to have the ability to say, this is okay and this is not okay. And you know, much of our lives we spend still wrestling with that issue of pride, don't we? We don't want to say, this is what God says. We often say, yeah, but I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's the way that it has to be. Pride is detrimental to life. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11, Isaiah warned, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. Do you see how the way we constantly think in our world is just backwards of the way God wants us to think? The place of real joy, whether it's in your home, we're going to find out. We're told as husbands to love our wives and to sacrifice for our wives the way God, the way Jesus Christ sacrificed for the church. You go, nah, uh That can't be right. I, 
I'm the man of this home. I am the king of this castle. I will be in charge. I will rule. And all of a sudden you realize servant leadership? Servant rulership? Do you mean that to be the ruler, I'm going to have to humble myself? That doesn't make any sense, Pastor. That's why I refer you back to the very first point. He said, because of all that I've done for you, because I've given you this, because your salvation is complete, because you are seated, everything's done, because you're seated, you're able to walk. See, that does not make any sense at all. Hang with me. Humility is the foundation to Christianity, and having the right mind is important to everything else that we do. Lowliness means knowing and accepting and being ourselves for the glory of God. You see, it's okay for me to be lowly when I realize my whole goal is just to bring glory to God. It's not about Mike Felber. It doesn't have to be about me. It's all about him. That takes all the pressure off because now all I have to do is think about what would he want? What does he look like? Whether it's our church services, whether it's the way we talk with each other, whether it's the way I react in the community, or especially the way I react in my home. What would God look like? How can I bring glory to God through this? In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, we realize God does not condemn you when you accept yourself and your gifts. He just doesn't want you to think more highly of yourself than what you ought to think. But he also doesn't want you to think more lowly about yourself. I just, who am I? I am who I am because this is the way God's made me, by God's grace. So the application for us of this first word, with all lowliness, I can walk in a way that glorifies God through lowliness. You see, Jesus was meek, and lowly in heart. He did what needed to be done for the right reason. The next word here is meekness. You know, it's so easy to mistake meekness for weakness. You say, well, I guess if I'm meek, I just need to get run over by people. But that's not the case at all. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is doing the right thing with the right attitude. Jesus cleansed the temple. But he did it with the right attitude for the right reason. Letting Christ use you the way he made you. For me, probably the best illustration of meekness that I've ever seen... Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power that is under submission, that's under control. In Iowa, we lived in the southern part of Iowa. So um, it was hilly. It was almost like Missouri. So it wasn't like flat. It was very hilly. We had a lot of Amish that lived in the area. And the Amish don't use John Deere. The Amish don't use Massey Ferguson or IH or anything else. The John Deere use great big draft horses. Horses that weigh 2,000 pounds. Horses that are huge. 
And I remember driving home in the evenings sometimes, and I would be coming over the hills, and I would see a horse going back to the barn at the end of the day. And I would see this little bitty Amish girl. And where we were, you know, depending on the clothing they wear, sometimes is kind of dependent on what they get a good deal on, and the bishop says that's an okay color. I don't know if you've been around Amish, but that's kind of often what happens. And at that point, they were wearing these bright green and bright blue were the Amish colors for a year or two while they had that fabric. So she had her black outfit on, but then she had this green dress on. And she's probably, I'm guessing, 10? Maybe, probably not, but maybe 100 pounds. And she's leading this 2,000-pound horse, which dwarfs her. And she's walking home, and the horse is just going, plod, plod, plod. That is meekness. At any point, the horse could have just flicked his head, and the little girl would have gone flying. But the reality was, the horse, though strong, was very usable because he had been humiliated. He had been humbled. He was under control. You know, in our lives, the very first things that God's wanting to do, he's wanting us to have the humble attitude and he's wanting us to be under control. You can't be under control until you've dealt with Humility, lowliness. Because as long as you're thinking, I'm going to be number one, you will never be under control. But beginning with lowliness, he then goes to meekness. And that is letting Christ use you the way you've been made. It's just who you are. And the exciting part is, I don't have to become something to be used by God. God's already made me. I am who I am, and you are the way you are. That's what's exciting. So I recognize I just want to glorify God with my body, and I'm going to be a blessing to others, and I'm going to put myself last, which means now if I'm going to be last, I don't have any problem then being under control and submitting because what are you going to do? What right of mine are you going to take away that I haven't already said? It's okay. I'm just here to glorify God. It's not about rights. It's not about who gets to be in charge. It's a matter of how can we glorify God. Notice the third thing here in verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering. Long-suffering means to be long-tempered. It doesn't mean to stay angry for a long time. It means to go a very long time before your temper shows. A word we would use would be patient. And the, third, the fourth one goes right with it, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Forbearance has the idea of to carry along, to bear someone along, to help them, to carry their burden this has the idea of enduring discomfort without fighting back. You can't suffer long without love. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you would read, Charity 
suffereth long. It allows us the ability to work with someone who is struggling and they do things that irritate us. But I want you to notice this isn't possible without the Holy Spirit. You couldn't do this before. In fact, how do you know when the Holy Spirit is involved in something? Well, the Holy Spirit's tree always produces certain kinds of fruit. And one of those is long-suffering. But neither of these are possible without love. We've seen the love of Christ. When people were mistreating him, what was his response? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And you know what's interesting is today, I am in Christ. I am seated with Christ. I am dead. I died with Christ. And now I am alive in Christ. And if you've trusted Christ, you have too. So what does that tell you? I can today do what I could never do before because it's not me anymore. It's Christ who's living in me. It's me in Christ. Now being in Christ, I love differently. I used to love as long as you would do what I wanted you to do. We were great friends as long as you made me happy. And when you didn't make me happy anymore, I wasn't happy with you anymore. We're not friends anymore. It's kind of a junior high kind of a relationship. But sadly, we can often live our whole lives that way. Our marriages can go that way. Make me happy and we got a great relationship. Don't make me happy and we're not getting along. But the reality is, he says, I now have the privilege to bring glory to Jesus, to God in the church by Jesus Christ, and that will never end from this point on. Why does that take place? Because I'm in Christ. Christ loves differently. I can love differently today. Then he's, he makes this statement in verse 3. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Endeavor means to work really hard at. Laboring. Eagerly maintaining something. It has the idea of guarding. Now, we start with this one truth, and that is, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. What does that tell us? We aren't the ones who brought unity. What did we learn in the doctrinal section? Jesus Christ hath broken down the partition. He's made the two one. And now what could never be done any other way, you've got different color eyes than I've got, we can't get along. You've got different color hair than I've got, you just wait, you'll get this too. No, that's not what I was saying. You've got different color hair than I've got, we can't get along. You this, you that, you know, we cannot get along because of... And Jesus Christ said, oh no, I've broken down all those walls. The Jews were very proud of the fact that they had been set aside by God. The Gentiles could never be a Jew because they weren't born that way. And there was always going to be this fighting... We see that in the world today. And as much as I would love to see world peace, the only way world peace is going to come is when all 
come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior because that's when the walls are broken down. So he says here, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. I'm not trying to somehow build, I'm not trying to make the unity. God's already done that. But he says, I do want you to be very aware of this. You need to be very careful to protect the unity of the Spirit, to remember what God has done for you. He broke down the barriers. He made all one. But there is this constant awareness in a church. You know, with this brand new church, it would be very easy for factions to come in, for us to begin fighting over different things. Remember what he said? You remember how we began? He said, you know, you begin with lowliness. When you begin by saying, you know what, I'm going to have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had of putting God's glory first and others before myself. Right now, it doesn't really seem to be a big deal because we've got so many chairs, but there's going to come a day when someone's going to sit in your seat. There's going to come a day when someone's going to park in your spot. There's going to come a day when someone's going to do something that you say, that is mine. From that point on, you sit on this side, they sit on this side. If they sit on this side, you sit on that side. And it happens all the time in churches. That's the reason why the very first application that he gives us from all this doctrine, he says, it's all been done for you. You're seated with Christ. You say, I can't do that. Well, you don't have to worry about it because it's already been done for you. It's a constant effort to keep this. Each person works at this. Nobody gets a pass. You know, in our homes, it's the same way. In our marriages, it's the same way. Cindy and I don't get a pass on endeavoring to keep the unity in our home. Both of us have to work at it. Even the children in the home, they have to work at it. And you say, well, that's not fair because my spouse doesn't want to work on it. You know, the only thing I can encourage you to do is today you can be you. You can work on the unity that you need to work on in your home. You can do this. Your belief impacts your behavior. We can only endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit when we build unity by carrying each other along. You see, all of a sudden, can you just keep up? Well, how do you keep, how do you help someone keep up? Get on my back. What do we usually say? Get off my back. Zach, can't you go faster? You know, now he can outdistance me, no big deal. But when he was little, Dad, I'm tired. Dad, I can't. What do we do? Just get on my back. But, you know what? I can't carry someone along until I'm willing to be patient with him. We can't carry someone along here in church unless we're willing to be patient with them. And we can't be patient with someone until we have our strengths under control. I could carry you, but I'm not gonna. 
See what happens before we can endeavor to keep the unity. We have to be willing to carry, to help each other with their weaknesses, to carry them along. We can't carry each other along until we're willing to be patient. We can't be patient until we have our strengths under control. And we will not have our strengths under control until we have the right attitude about ourselves. When we have the right attitude about ourselves, now we're able to build these other things. The last characteristic Paul challenges us to remember is peace. The bond of peace. Would you mark this passage and then would you turn with me over to James chapter 3? It's not very much further, but just a little bit farther in your Bible. James, you see Hebrews, just drive beyond that just a little bit. Hebrews, and then we come to James chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit dwelleth with us, the spirit that dwelleth within us lusteth the envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the lowly, the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. You see what he's describing for us is he begins going through this and he says there can be peace. The reason for war on the outside is because there's war on the inside. Why am I always wanting to pick a fight with someone? Because I've got a war going on on the inside of me. I used to have a friend in elementary, junior high age, and he was just always ready for a fight, no matter what you said. I mean, he was ready to fight me. But you know what really needed to take place? What was going on out here was not really the big deal. He said it would be to me if he hits me. The reality was he had a war going on on the inside. When he dealt with the war on the inside... He is such a wonderful person to be around. Now, we could have always been fighting. 
Or I could at least start with me and I could begin with having the right attitude and I could build on top of that that I was going to have the gifts that I had under control. And as I built that platform, we could get along. Because you see, where he was struggling, I just had to carry him. True peace is a gift from the Spirit. And when the peace of God rules in our hearts, we can keep unity. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, endeavoring, working hard, peace. These are characteristics of what our lives should look like because of what God's done for us. I couldn't do these things on my own. And you can't do these things on your own either. Walking worthy is walking in a way that reflects who your father is. Doing begins with done. I can't walk until I'm seated. It seems backwards, but we can do because of what Christ has already done. We were dead. Christ made us alive, made us to be seated with him. Can I ask you this question? Have you ever done that? Maybe today you're struggling. You're going, I don't know if I, I, don't, I, don't know if I can do this. Well, you can't. It's already been done for you. It's a matter of accepting what Jesus Christ has done and recognizing you need what Jesus Christ has done. That's it. You say, I don't know if I can change. I don't know if I can be the kind of person that God wants me to be. I don't know if I can be a Christian. I don't know if I can do this. Just sit down. It's been done. When we sit with Christ, we sit with Christ so that we can walk in this world. If you've never received Christ as your Savior you're going to be very frustrated trying to live a Christian life. You can't. Receive Christ as your Savior. Receive the Holy Spirit, which is God's gift to you. And then start ironing out all the issues. With the Holy Spirit, I can. Without the Holy Spirit, I never could. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you been trying to do things on your own? No wonder you're frustrated. No wonder you're wondering, could I ever make it? Sadly, in churches today, I hear this phrase, just fake it until you make it. Oh, how frustrating that would be. If you've never received Christ, you need to start at the end where he's finished. It is finished.